Thank you, Doug. And thank you all for being here. I also want to just start out with a thank you to the Boston Bar Association for hosting this and being a support for this event and for all of BLP's projects. I'm very grateful for that. Um, I wanted to give you a little history of this uh, project. I always call it the, um, it's like the perfect country song. It was a collaboration between legal services, the courts, the private bar, bar association, and um, it has been a very successful project that allows us to assist people in the appellate court and see to it that they understand what is happening even if we can't represent them fully. I think you will find that your panelists here are experts in the field and that you will come away from this with a real understanding of the kind of work we do and the kind of role you will play in that. If you have questions, please send them to me through the chat room. But at this point, I would like to turn it over to the uh, folks from the court. Good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of Mark Green, Chief Justice and the Justice of the Appeals Court, I'd like to thank you for volunteering. <clears throat> the clinic began using space in the Appeals Court in 2015, and we have seen firsthand the clinic make a real difference for hundreds of self-represented litigants every year. Uh, trial and appellate court staff can provide procedural information, but not the advice or counseling which many self-represented litigants need, especially given the complexities of interlocutory and appellate review. Uh, litigants appeal from all of the trial courts and have a wide variety of issues and questions. They deeply appreciate being able to speak to a lawyer about their case. And uh, we want you to know that you, the role you are about to undertake as a volunteer will be appreciated not only by the litigants, but by the justices and the uh, court staff at the Appeals Court and the Supreme Judicial Court. So best of luck and thank you. Um, just following up on what Joe said, um, as an assistant clerk at the Appeals Court, I've been there since 2010. And I can't tell you how delighted we've been to have the volunteer attorneys coming into our office Wednesday afternoons and helping because as Joe said, we can't give legal advice as frustrating as that often can be for all of us. Um, what we find happens when the, it's always, you know, clinic day when the courts open and we're, you know, the clinic's not remote as it is now is always a pretty exciting day in our office. And um, we often have a lot of people lined up, up outside early on, really waiting to get in to see the volunteer attorneys. And oftentimes we've always said, you know, even if um, they don't have a good case, uh, for whatever reason, um, the volunteer attorney might say, this might be a better avenue for you to go, which isn't doing an appeal. The fact that they can actually be heard by an attorney makes such a huge difference to them. So thank you so much for um, participating in this program and we look forward to seeing you once we're all back in our physical office space. Um, and thank you, Joe and Patty, for all the support from the court. Um, we very much appreciate it. Um, so as Doug mentioned, I'm Amy Anthony. I'm the supervising attorney from VLP for the clinic. Um, so I thought I'd just sort of tell you um, kind of uh, about the basic protocols for the clinic and how it works. Um, so the clinic is statewide. So anyone from the state can attend the clinic. Um, we deal with state court matters only, so no federal court matters. Um, and we are there for clients who want to appeal or who are at the appeal stage um, at either the appeals court or the SJC. 
Um, and as uh, Patty and Joe mentioned, uh, sort of pre-pandemic, the way that the clinic worked is that we operated out of the appeals court clerk's office um, on Wednesday afternoons from about 12.30 to 4. Um, and we were a walk-in clinic, so um, anyone could just walk in um, and sign up to get assistance. Um, so often those were people who had come to the court asking questions who could be referred to the clinic. Um, and also um, our housing clinic operated out of the housing court um, on Wednesday mornings before then. So often we would send people uh, directly from the housing court over to the appeals clinic um, after their cases. Um, so in the in-person session, uh, we would first screen people for eligibility. We have to do that for um, our funding reasons. Um, and then we bring them to our volunteers um, to help with their cases. Um, the way that it works now in the pandemic, we were able to um, get the sort of virtual clinic going pretty quickly, which um, I was really happy about. Um, and basically what the way it works now is that we um, are seeing clients virtually instead of it being live, we're doing it by appointment. Um, where we'll just schedule people for the same time that the in-person clinic was, which was um, Wednesdays from 12 to 4. Um, and um, during that time, uh, the volunteer attorney will call the litigant and provide basically the same kind of assistance that they would have gotten um, in court. Um, so again, we always do the screening um, and a limited assistance retainer ahead of time. Um, together with MINTS, we work to get you a uh, uh, clinic guide um, for you guys to follow, um, sort of outlining the clinic procedures and um, what your role is, um, and uh, also copies of things like the limited retainer so that you know um, the exact scope of the representation that you'll be providing. Um, and then I also do typically review the cases ahead of time um, and might provide sort of a note um, with some guidance um, or some basic um, kind of substantive information for you. Um, and in both in-person clinic and in the virtual clinic, um, I'm always uh, there for any substantive help you may need. Um, in person, I'm just kind of in the room or floating around, um, and virtually I'm available by cell phone or by email. Um, so it's working really well. Um, and I think, you know, like anything um, with this pandemic, we're all we're constantly trying to change. Um, so we may be adjusting to um, the clinic to kind of better approximate the in-person clinic. We're talking about potentially doing um, like a Zoom kind of clinic or things like that. Um, so there may be some changes, um, but we all have to adjust in these times. Um, so in, in whatever format the clinic is operating in, we provide the same kind of assistance. So that could be um, advice and counsel about um, perfecting an appeal, um, the appeal process, um, talking to clients about the risks and benefits of um, appealing, um, the strength of their legal issue, um, and also help drafting certain forms. Um, so that could be the notice of appeal, um, sort of basic um, uh, forms that they would be needing to fill out. Um, and then you would also be assessing these cases for merit to be referred out to our um, review panel. Um, and our review panel is basically just a group of subject matter experts who review the cases um, for um, possible referral for full representation. Um, so um, we, the, the main practice areas that we work in are housing, uh, which are, I would say are the vast majority of the appeals that we see. Um, we also have a lot of family law appeals and also 209A um, restraining order appeals. Um, so, I mean, with housing, um, the, I know the clinic has been quite slow recently, I think because um, a lot of sort of court action has been suspended um, with the pandemic. 
but with the um, eviction moratorium ending um, on October 17th, we're expecting sort of a new influx of cases. Um, and it's a really uh, exciting time, I think, to be involved in this work. Um, I think there will be uh, opportunities to address really sort of new and um, interesting legal issues. Um, and of course, it's, it's also a time of just unprecedented need for, um, you know, our clients and people who have been so um, immensely affected by the pandemic. So um, we just very much appreciate your time and interest in volunteering and I hope to see you all. Great. So um, as Doug mentioned, I'm a litigation associate at Mintz and a, uh, prior to my time at Mintz, I was a law clerk for Judge Massing at the Appeals Court, which is where I learned about the Civil Appeals Clinic. Um, I've been volunteering at the Civil Appeals Clinic since I left the Appeals Court and wanted to give you all a bit of background on um, what it's like to volunteer and some of the experiences that I've had there. Um, first, just as a plug for how easy it is to volunteer at the clinic, unlike a lot of pro bono cases that you take on, your time commitment is uh, very predictable. You only have to be there on Wednesday afternoon from about 1230 to 4. There's no obligation of continued representation with any of the litigants. You don't have to kind of take on any of the cases. Um, if you happen to work with a litigant where you refer their case to the subject matter experts and the clinic decides to represent the litigant, you generally get a right of first refusal to work on briefing and arguing the case, but there's no obligation to do so. So, you know, it's a very um, tight time commitment and incredibly predictable. So it's a great way to get some pro bono hours in. Um, a little bit about the general experience for volunteering at the clinic. Um, usually when the clinic is not remote, um, it's, it, we work hard to pair sort of more experienced attorneys and more experienced volunteers with less experienced people so you're not left alone with any of the litigants, which can be a little intimidating the first time around. Um, and it also provides you with a lot of really great experience, um, not just in volunteering and working with litigants, but experience that can be really helpful in your practice. Um, you do a lot of direct client counseling, you learn to manage difficult conversations with litigants, um, you spend a lot of time looking at procedural requirements for appeals, learning about timely appeals, um, how to object um, at the trial court level in a way that preserves your appellate rights, what it means for a, to have a final judgment or for a case to be right for appeal, um, the importance of the appellate deadlines. These are all things that you'll learn during your time at the clinic. Um, in terms of the types of type of work you do, as Amy mentioned, you know, you spend a lot of time walking through the litigants case with them, um, talking about the um, quality of their appeal, whether it's worth it for them to go through the process. Um, you often will find yourself helping draft a notice of appeal or a motion to enlarge time to file the brief or um, motions to docket an appeal late. And these are all things that are contained in the training manual that we provide to all of the volunteers so that you're not sort of coming up with all of these on your own. Um, having said all that, it can sound a little bit overwhelming for people that don't have appellate experience, um, but 
This is the only assistance that most of these litigants will receive during their entire appellate process. And it's a pretty complex and overwhelming experience for them. So to even be able to discuss their case with someone that has legal experience and who is definitely more familiar with the system than they are is um, a really rewarding experience for them and really makes them feel heard at the court. So they are always incredibly gracious and grateful for any assistance that can be provided. Um, and, you know, I personally find it always to be a really rewarding experience and, and can't recommend it highly enough to participate, especially right now and, you know, post October 17th when there's going to be a lot of need and the clinic is going to be remote. So it's, you know, even easier to commit to doing a couple hours on the phone with litigants or even over Zoom. Um, and with that, I will pass it to Emily to discuss appellate filings and the appellate practice and procedure. All right, thank you, Catherine. Uh, I'm Emily Canstrom-Musgrave. I'm one of the co-chairs of Minces Appellate Practice Group. I have also had a wonderful experience working at the clinic and uh, clerked at the SJC before coming to Mins. Um, I love talking about appellate practice and procedure, uh, and I will try to keep this um, pretty short, and so it will be uh, fairly high level. I want to give you a basic timeline of what deadlines might look like. I encourage you to read the rules, check the standing orders, and the materials, of course, that Catherine mentioned that are going to be provided to you. All of that is very helpful. Um, I'd also put in a plug uh, for the court's website, frankly, at this point. Uh, it's so good that if you Google almost anything, you will find the appropriate rule and standing orders. So that's that's also helpful. Um, but I have included my name and email address at the end of this PowerPoint. So if I can ever be of help, please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, and with that, let's get started. So uh, Massachusetts Appellate Practice and Procedure. And um, Doug, I think you're driving, so you can flip to the next slide, please. Um, as I said, this is gonna be a pretty high level overview of appeals court procedure. Um, your mileage may vary, check the rules, but something at least. Okay, we're ready for the next one. Before you file the appeal, a couple questions uh, to consider as you're thinking about your first steps. What is it that you and the client are trying to accomplish? And specifically, is there an additional avenue of relief uh, that may be available in the trial court including post-judgment relief. So this is something you'd want to consider if you meet with someone and it sounds like the goal is really to put new evidence or information before the trial court, then maybe what they're really looking for is a Rule 52B motion to amend or make additional findings of fact or something like that, and maybe it's not quite time to appeal yet. So that might be something to consider. Has the issue been preserved? Issues that are not preserved are generally deemed waived, and that's a big deal. Um, so uh, uh, checking to make sure that things were appropriately preserved is, is important. Um, the standard of review, uh, uh, before I get to the record, the standard of review matters in this context. Questions of fact are going to generally be reviewed under the clearly erroneous standard, which is pretty deferential. That's different, for example, from issues of law where you get something like de novo review. And again, that matters and you want to be able to manage expectations and think about um, what makes sense in terms of your appeal. And then is the record adequate to support an appeal? This is one of the things that's very, very difficult to correct after the fact. So if you don't have the record you need, uh, you may have a problem as well. Um, to which court will you be appealing? So unless you're appealing from the district court or the BMC, 
most appeals go to the appeals court. That's not always true and you should confirm, but this um, presentation that I'm doing is focused mostly on that point. Um, and last, is a motion for stay appropriate? So under uh, Mass Rule of Appellate Procedure 6, uh, you can try to seek a stay. You have to first show that you sought relief in the lower court, that the lower court denied it, or for some reason it's not practicable to seek relief in the lower court. And then uh, from there, in certain circumstances, you can appeal to a single justice. Um, so that may be something to consider depending on what's happening, if, if it's urgent. Um, so all of these things I would sort of put in the hopper as you're first assessing the appeal. Next slide, please. Okay, now we have our timeline. And although the rules look a little bit like a big pot of soup sometimes, they really do go in order and it all makes sense. Um, and in full disclosure, I was one of those law students who walked into civil procedure and said, oh, thank goodness there are rules. Um, if you were one of those, you're gonna like this a lot. If you weren't, I promise it's not that bad. Uh, so what I've done here is put together a timeline of the big, the big things, the things that you need to really keep track of. So first question, is there a final judgment? Uh, we're talking about Mass Rule of Civil Procedure 54 and it's Rule 58 uh, that has the separate document that's going to be entered on the docket um, to make a final judgment. Um, if there is not a final judgment, then is the case otherwise ripe, for example, for an interlocutory appeal? So I'm going to take a really quick detour here into final judgments and interlocutory appeals because this is going to be really important uh, before you even notice the appeal. So next slide, please. Final judgments. Um, generally, only final judgments are appealable as of right. And if you look at Rule 54A, you get some sort of definitions about what constitutes a final judgment and where you might find one. I've listed some of those examples here. Um, as I said, a civil judgment becomes effective when it's set forth on a separate document and entered on the trial court's docket. Um, and we'll talk about that again in a moment when we get to the notice of appeal. So uh, you're going to want to be looking for these, these clues that a final judgment has in fact entered. Um, next slide, please. There are uh, circumstances um, where you can appeal from something that is not final. And I just wanna take a moment on interlocutory appeals. Um, most trial court orders are interlocutory. That means they're not appealable as of right. So some of these examples would be discovery orders, um, denials of a motion to dismiss, um, or for summary judgment, or orders staying judicial proceedings. Interlocutory appeals are generally disfavored and you really want to proceed with caution if you think you're going to try to appeal from something that is not a final judgment. So examples of things of interlocutory um, issues that you might appeal would be something like issues reported by the trial court, um, things that fall under the doctrine of present execution. That would be something that can't be remedied on appeal, like disqualification of counsel or qualified immunity. Um, but we're talking about pretty rare and extraordinary circumstances. So I would sort of take a deep breath and really uh, take a good look at whether what you have is something that can be appealable if you don't have a final judgment uh, before you. I do wanna add to my detour uh, one more little route, which is that um, you may hear uh, people talk frequently about chapter 211, section three, which is the general superintendent's power of the, of the court. Um, that's a, it's a discretionary power of review, but it is extraordinary and there's case law saying that it will only be used in the most exceptional of circumstances. So even though that often comes up in conversation as something else we can do, um, you want to think very carefully about that and again, find your final judgment. So assuming you have a final judgment, next slide please. 
Now we're on to the notice of appeal. So this first step here is really important. Determine the date of your final judgment. Um, and that's why we're looking at docket entries and figuring out exactly when it entered. Um, you, the filing of the notice appeal of appeal somewhat counterintuitively happens in the lower court, not in the appeals court. Uh, so that's sort of important to know. You need to file it within 30 days of entry of the judgment, um, 60 days if the Commonwealth is a party, unless it's a child welfare case. Um, this deadline is really important. Uh, you, you need to do the best you can uh, to stick to it. Um, and there really is usually no reason not to file a notice of appeal. As you'll see from the templates, it's a pretty simple form that can be done in a couple minutes. Um, and you can decide later not to pursue it. But if you don't timely file it, it's very, very difficult uh, to do something otherwise. So. Um, Something, something to think about. There are motions uh, that will toll the time for filing a notice of appeal. All of this is set forth in Mass Rule of Appellate Procedure 4B. Um, so you can, you can take a look um, at that. Uh, an example, for example, would include uh, a motion under Rule 50B um, or for amended findings, which we were talking about earlier under 52B. Um, and if such a motion has been made, then the time to appeal runs from the entry of the order disposing of the last remaining motion. So then you'd have a little bit more time uh, on this side. But again, with the notice of appeal, it's usually a good idea to file it if you think there's any possibility that an appeal will proceed. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, Transcript request and assembly of the record. So here's where the deadlines really start to kick in. Um, within 14 days after filing the notice of appeal, the appellant uh, must either order the transcript or say that none is necessary. Uh, the process for ordering the transcript uh, varies a little bit depending on what court you're in, but you can uh, find that out online and also check with uh, court clerks. At that point, the lower court clerk transmits notice of the assembled record to the parties and the clerk of the appellate court, and that you know, usually happens in about 21 days. Um, Within 14 days after, uh, actually, before I say that, a word on the record that comes from the trials court to the appeals court, it's um, it's sort of like a, a souped up docket sheet. So if there are things that you want the appeals court to really be able to look at, um, you may want to consider putting that in an addendum or in the appendix, and the rules are pretty specific about what goes where, addendum versus appendix, but don't assume that just because the record is being transmitted, everything that you'd want the court to see is in there. So that, that is something to think about also. Um, within 14 days after receiving notice of the assembly of the record, this is where we either pay a filing fee or as will be often the case here, request a waiver of that fee. Um, this is one of those things that is also really important to do within the time allowed, although I have it on good authority from some of my wonderful colleagues that there are possibilities of getting extensions if you're not able to make it within those 14 days. Um, so perhaps that's true. I haven't done it but I would say try to stick with the 14 days if you can. The other thing that has to happen within 14 days is the appellant must um, serve on the appellee designation of parts of the record to be included in the record appendix. I'll pause on that to say that the rule does encourage the parties to try to agree so that you're not designating and cross-designating, but this is the, the point in time where you really start thinking about what is going to support your briefs in terms of your appendix on appeal. Um, next slide, please. Okay. Your filing fee is paid or your fee waiver is approved. The clerk enters the appeal on the docket, and this is what kicks off your briefing schedule. Um, from that point, 
the appellant now has 14 days from the issuance of notice of entry of the appeal to submit a docketing statement. This is under Appeals Court Rule 10. Um, there's a sample docketing statement that's available. It's, I think, two pages. It's um, uh, pretty quick to do. Uh, the docketing statement does not obligate you to discuss certain things, and failure to mention something in a docketing statement doesn't somehow waive it. And in fact, the form itself says that. Uh, if you have any concern, it says, this statement is for information purposes only, and failure to raise an issue here will not preclude an appellant from raising the issue in its brief. So what you're doing is really explaining to the court what the issue is, but this is not intent. You're not going to be held to this as the appeal goes forward. So it's just sort of important to do it. Um, and then the other deadline that has kicked in here after your uh, fee is paid or your fee waiver is approved is that the appellant has 30 days from the entry of the appeal uh, to file a corporate disclosure statement. This is SJC Rule 121, and it applies to non-governmental corporate parties only. So if you're in that situation, you have this statement to file as well. Next slide, please. Ah, we're taking a break. This is my yellow square uh, instead of my red a triangles. Just to pause for a moment and say one word about direct appellate review. I'm not going to say a lot about that here because it's it's unlikely you're going to find yourself in a situation where you're filing a lot of applications for DAR. But um, if you come across a case that you believe should be reviewed by the panel of experts at the clinic uh, to, to consider whether direct appellate review is an appropriate avenue, uh, you can note that as part of your recommendation. So just to explain uh, for those who haven't who haven't experienced this before. Uh, the way DAR works is that a case goes straight to the SJC. Um, it doesn't go to the appeals court first. And this is really for questions of first impression, novel issues of law, constitutional issues, or um, questions of such public interest that justice requires a final determination by the SJC. So um, again, rare, but I flag it here. This is the point in time where you would start to make that consideration. Uh, okay, next slide, please. Briefing schedule. Uh, the colors are not just for fun. Um, we're talking about, um, well, they didn't actually come through. It, moving on. Um, so uh, the appellant's brief is filed um, 40 days after docketing of the appeal. Um, one extension is fairly routine. You can file a motion for extension of time. Um, usually that first extension is not to exceed 120 days. Um, and you have to explain why you need it. So uh, you want to try to file that at least seven days before any impending due date, um, if at all possible. Then the appellee files a brief 30 days after the appellant's brief is served. Uh, there is a reply brief, uh, the earlier of 14 days after service of the appellee's brief for seven days before the argument. Note, content and formatting, very specific. They are very specific, and we were talking before this, this um, presentation began about the interplay of all of the relevant rules, 16, 19, and 20. Um, 16 talks about the content of the brief, again, very specific, down to the contents of the signature block. Um, rule 20 talks about length, and we're talking about whether you're going to be using a monospace font like Courier New or a proportionally spaced font like Times New Roman. And depending on which one you use, the way you measure your length is different. So this is, um, leave yourself a little bit of time to read these rules and to think about all of these details. Um, and 
I don't want to go too far into the nuances here. I will say that on the appendix on Rule 18, again, just to circle back to what we said, this is not the entire record. Um, these are going to be the parts that you really want uh, to bring to the court's attention. There is a specific um, note in the rule that generally memoranda of law are not appropriate for inclusion in an appendix. Um, so that's also something to think about. Um, and then we get to filing. So Rule 19 covers filing. There is now e-filing in the court. Um, all appeals court cases are eligible for e-filing. All attorneys with cases pending in the appeals court must have an account and must e-file most appellate materials. Um, so I gave you the website there for the electronic filing at the appeals court guide, which is excellent. I um, encourage you to take a look at it to register and sort of figure out how it works before you're doing it for the first time, but it is um, really very user-friendly on the whole. Um, one detour before we move to oral argument is that Rule 17, which you'll notice I sort of skipped over in my constellation of rules that govern the briefing, uh, that governs amicus briefs. Uh, amicus briefs are for issues that go beyond um, party resources and bring specialized knowledge or credibility in an industry or area of law. Um, one thing I want to say about amicus briefs, if this does become relevant for you, is that there is a new rule uh, regarding disclosure of various parties' involvement, which is Rule 17C5. So for folks who maybe haven't looked at the rules in a couple of years, that's um, something to just keep in mind. Next slide, please. Oral argument, best part. Uh, so you will have a panel of three appeals court justices, 15 minutes per side. There is no rebuttal. Um, nothing argued in the brief is waived by failure to argue orally, so no need to try and cram it all in. Um, note that the court may dispose of the case without oral argument if there's no substantial question of law. Um, some may be surprised to know that this used to be called Rule 128, but it is no longer Rule 128. This is Appeals Court Rule 23, um, and we will all refer to it by its new name. Next slide, please. And then you get an opinion. Um, there are three possibilities for what that may look like. You may get a full opinion that comes with an author, it's precedential, and it also comes with a rescript, which is the order or mandate to the lower court disposing of the appeal. So common rescripts are things like judgment affirmed, judgment reversed. Usually this happens 130 days after oral argument or after briefing is concluded if there's no argument. Um, you could also get now an Appeals Court Rule 23, again, formerly known as 128. This is a summary disposition, uh, would be no substantial question of law. Um, these can be cited uh, persuasively if they're after February 26th of 2008, um, not before. The last possibility is that you get a rescript opinion. That's a brief unsigned appellate opinion. It is precedential. It doesn't come with a separate rescript document. And then we get to what's next. Next slide, please. Okay, you could consider a motion for reconsideration or modification under Rule 27. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, you would really only be thinking about this if you can state with particularity points of law that you think were overlooked or misapprehended. Um, you could also consider filing for further appellate review. That's Rule 27.1. You need to do that within 21 days after the decision, and that is a request to the SJC. Um, and the standard there is substantial reasons affecting the public interest or the interest of justice. Um, so again, use sparingly. Last slide, please. And this is the summary timeline. 
So this hopefully is a helpful sort of high level roadmap of when your deadlines kick in, what these things look like. Um, I'll say again that filing the notice of appeal uh, is really important to do. There's usually no downside to, to doing that. Um, you don't want to miss that. Uh, but there may be opportunities to expand some of these deadlines. So if that happens, reach out to someone. Um, we can hopefully be helpful. And the last slide has my name and email and phone number. That's my direct line. So if I can be helpful uh, in any way, please let me know. Hi, my name is Tina Paradiso. I'm the Senior Supervising Attorney of the Family Law Unit at Community Legal Aid. And I wanted to, first of all, thank you for being willing to consider volunteering for this clinic. I think as the speakers before me have said, it's so important for people to um, have an understanding of what's happening in their cases. And even if they speak with you and gain only the advice that they shouldn't proceed further, um, I, I do believe, truly believe that's very helpful to people, um, especially in the area of family law. Many, if not most, litigants are unrepresented. So that means that you could be the first attorney that they're speaking with throughout the entire course of their case. Um, also, one thing to recall about family law is that it's intensely personal. Um, the court is focused on matters that are essential to a person like their money and their children. Uh, so those, those subjects tend to engender a lot of feelings and emotion and it's very, very hard for people to be objective and think like we do, like lawyers about these matters. Um, so sometimes you may be in a little bit of an awkward position of having to tell someone that even though the decision that was reached by the trial court um, may feel like it's not correct, you know, legally it is. Um, so, so that's difficult. And I, I'm just volunteering that if you, if you need some help coming up with ways to relay that information, um, my phone number is on this first slide and I really truly am happy to take your calls about either talking to clients or uh, the substance of what I'm going to cover today. And on that topic, I wanted to start by saying that I have 20 minutes to deliver to you what I've devoted my professional lifetime to learning. So um, it's, it's really going to be an extremely broad overview. And, and I hope to give you just enough so that you can spot some important issues. But feel free to give me or any of the subject matter experts a call if you think you have a, a very good issue that should be examined further. Um, some of the things that I've gotten calls on before have led to discussions about um, what else can be done or what else should be done instead of appellate work. And that can be things such as um, post-judgment relief, but also something that we see a lot in family law, which is a complaint for modification. And I'll touch on that a little bit later in more detail, but you know, there, are, there are many ways to change um, judgments in the probate and family court if they are relating to children and uh, certain types of money payments. Um, something else that, that we've discussed at the um, panel uh, review level is how to get someone 
representation by a legal aid lawyer going forward. So also, you know, open to that topic as well. Um, next slide, please. Uh, what I wanted to cover today are some of the major subject areas that you'll see at the clinic. And those are probably going to be custody disputes, uh, support, either alimony or child support, guardianship, and you might see woven throughout all of those topics, issues of appointment of counsel. Um, I wanna start by describing a bit about how most cases proceed through the probate and family court. So first, basics of pro, the plaintiff files a complaint. However, what you may not be expecting is that the indigent litigants are often not told about the opportunity to have their filing fees and service costs waived for indigency. So we've had a few cases where people have um, paid for these filing fees and service of process when probably they really shouldn't have paid. Um, after the complaint is served, Either party may file a motion for temporary orders asking the court for relief before you get to um, judgment, excuse me. <coughs> um, a motion is marked for hearing. Uh, that, that process depends on the court. Some courts do this in dramatically different ways. And certainly now during the pandemic, um, it's important to know the specific court to know their preference about how to mark a motion for hearing. Um, at the motion session, the parties are likely to be sent to the probation department for what's called dispute intervention. Uh, that's kind of like a stripped down or pared down mediation. Um, parties in that dispute intervention and before the probate and family court are likely to be unrepresented. Uh, and the probation officer will attempt to have the parties reach an agreement at that time. Unfortunately, the parties often are not told about the relevant law burdens of proof or the procedural issues that are important to their case. And although it's contrary to common law, once the temporary order is entered, it's likely to be viewed as the law of the case. And it will form, in most cases, the basis for the ultimate judgment that's entered. Also in the probate and family court, most cases don't go to trial. Uh, most probably about 90%, the last I had checked the stats, will settle. Next slide. Um, custody def is defined in Chapter 208, Section 31. Legal custody is the right and responsibility to make major decisions regarding the child's welfare. This includes in matters of education, medical care, and emotional, moral, and religious development. Um, you can have sole legal custody, which is when the right of custody, legal custody vests in one parent. And you can have shared legal custody, which is continued mutual responsibility and involvement by both, both parents. Um, let me stop and just digress a bit about the terminology. I, I really don't like using the word custody. Um, Personally, I feel like you can have custody of an object or, you know, a prisoner is in custody. I, I don't agree that that's the term that we should be using to discuss where children live or who makes decisions regarding their well-being. But that's the term that's in the statute, so that's what we have. Um, and that's why you're going to see it throughout um, decisions as well. Um, physical custody. 
is a determination of the residence of a child and the responsibility for the day-to-day -day supervision of the child. You can have sole physical custody or shared physical custody. Uh, there is no strict definition of sharing physical custody. So sometimes you can have shared physical custody when um, the other parent might have the child for you know, one or two days a week, but there is no, no time limit on that. Next slide. Uh, so the rights of unmarried and married parents are very different when it comes to custody determinations. For married parents, a child born to married parents is presumed to be the legal child of both parents. For unmarried parents, that is not the case. A non-marital child doesn't have a legal father unless and until both parents sign an acknowledgement of parentage or until a court enters an adjudication of paternity. Um, next slide, please. And when a child is born to a married woman, her spouse is presumed to be the other legal parent of that child. Uh, as I say here, the non-birthing spouse can choose to sign a denial of parentage to overcome that presumption, or the court can make certain findings to overcome that presumption. But until that threshold is met, no one else can be declared to be the father or other parent, no matter what the biology is. Next slide. Um, what's often surprising to people is that for unmarried parents, unless and until there's an order of the court saying otherwise, the mother of a non-marital child has custody, both legal and physical, of the child. Um, this is by statute and also mentioned in subsequent case law, um, Smith versus McDonald. Um, this came about um, perhaps very deliberately because at the time of birth, approximately 24 to 26% of children don't have an identified uh, legal father at or around the time of birth. And so you can see the legal morass that could potentially be opened if we have to try to wait if medical decisions need to be made and you know other um, we need to wait until we adjudicate paternity before we give life-saving treatment. That would not really be a great system. Um, next slide, please. When determining custody and parenting time for non-marital children, uh, the court has different considerations than when viewing children of a marriage. The court is meant to examine the pattern of caregiving and responsibility that was in place prior to filing the complaint. And if the father would like to have a form of shared custody, the father must show an affirmative history of cooperative and involved parenting in order to obtain custody. Um, that's also the case for legal custody. And again, you can imagine why this is important. If the parties did not intend to live together and or parent a child together, and they really don't have a, um, very much in common and they had no common intent on how to raise a child, uh, these are things that the court's going to want to take a look at. Um, this is an area where uninformed pro se people, both mothers and fathers, have a lot of trouble. 
Um, you know, this isn't something that uh, comes naturally. Um, mothers may have unwittingly ceded this right in dispute intervention. Um, you know, oftentimes they'll sign over what they're told, you know, it's, it's just the, the fair thing to do. Uh, so they, they give joint legal custody in cases where it may be utterly inappropriate, like um, they have fundamental disagreements about educational decisions or medical decisions. Um, fathers also don't understand what they need to show or prove in order to obtain uh, shared custody. And some judges also don't understand um, the standard and or uh, don't give it its due regard at the time of trial. And, and some judges have said, you know, blatantly on the record that they are giving uh, shared legal custody almost as a consolation or um, as, a, and I really hate saying this, but it is, it has been said um, that they are doing it as an experiment to see what happens. I, I think that is a real shame to be experimenting with the life of a child to see how it goes, but that, that does happen quite frequently. Um, next slide. For married parents, the presumptions are very different. And um, as you can see, in most circumstances, both parents have shared custody of the child. And there is no presumption in favor of, um, in favor of or against shared legal or physical custody. Next slide. The court, in order to determine custody of marital children, is guided by the best interest standard. And there is no definition. Um, even if you look in the case law, it's very difficult to figure out what best interests means exactly. So that varies in a on a case-by-case -case basis. Next slide. Um, even if the non-custodial parent does not have shared legal custody, they still have the right to access the child's academic hospital or other health records. Uh, one little note here is that the provider must be careful to redact all information regarding present or prior addresses if there's an order to impound the address of the child or custodial parent. Uh, next slide. Okay, this is something that I, I think has come up frequently at the clinic. It certainly comes up a lot in our practice. Um, and that is the concept of removal of the child out of the Commonwealth. If a parent is married and the child resides with them, they cannot move outside of Massachusetts with the child without the court's permission or written permission of the other parent. If the parents are not married and no father is named on the birth certificate, the mother and child can leave the Commonwealth without permission. But if the father is on the birth certificate, the mother must get court permission or written consent from the father before removing the child permanently from the Commonwealth. Uh, next slide. Um, domestic violence is a concern in the probate and family court far more frequently than you might imagine. There was a study done in the Norfolk probate and family court a few years ago that showed that uh, domestic violence was present in some way in approximately 76% of the cases going through the court. 
Um, so it's, it's likely that you might see some of those issues come before you when you're at the clinic. There are certain protections in the law for survivors of domestic violence and their children. Um, those are in both the uh, statute relating to custody of marital children and the separate statute relating to non-marital children. Next slide. If the child was conceived as a result of a rape and the parent was convicted of the rape, the conviction can be used as conclusive evidence of a serious incident of abuse that would weigh against custody being with the convicted parent. Um, however, one thing to know is that it is very rare to find an actual conviction for rape that would lead to this disqualifying uh, section of the statute. Next slide. Okay, child support. Um, in most cases, child support is set based upon the formula in the Massachusetts Child Support Guidelines. And if the current child support order is different from the amount that should be determined under the formula, either parent can bring a complaint for modification to change the support amount to the correct amount. Um, so this has come up for the uh, clinic in a few ways. Um, first, there have been some cases where someone comes to the clinic and says, you know, I have this order, this order came out 20 days ago, but I lost my job in the meantime. Uh, what should I do? Should I file an appeal? No, the answer is you should go file a complaint for modification to change your child support amount. Um, if someone though is not working at the level that the judge determines they should be, so the case, there's a case where, um, you know, someone is, someone has quit their job because they were, they knew they were going to have to pay child support. Um, the judge can attribute income and then order a child support amount based on the level of income that they think the person should have. Next slide, please. Um, guardianship of minors. The statute here is um, very unclear especially if you ever have time and you want to look at it side by side with the statute relating to guardianship of incapacitated adults. Um, but what, what it essentially boils down to is that someone can get guardianship over a child if the parents of that child are unfit or unavailable to parent or the parent has given consent to the guardianship. Um, indigent parents are entitled to counsel when someone attempts to bring a guardianship petition. Indigent parents are also entitled to counsel if they would like to change or eliminate the guardianship. Uh, the court may appoint a guardian, as I said, if the parents are unfit or their guardian consents, but this is meant to be a very high bar and not, guardianship should not be awarded lightly. Um, the burden of proof at the time of, of a parent asking for a change in the guardianship order is on the guardian to show a continuing need for the guardianship. Next slide. There is a provision in 209C that I want to bring to your attention. Uh, 209C is the statute covering um, most aspects of custody for uh, non-marital children. And Section 7 allows for appointment of counsel to represent either party whenever the interests of justice require. Um, so 
if you have someone who for some reason still has some aspect of the litigation ongoing, um, you may want to tell them that they should go back and ask to have counsel appointed in the trial court. Um, a few years ago, the clinic did refer an issue that, or a case that seemed like it was going to present this issue very clearly, but fortunately for the parties involved, it, it settled before that issue uh, came up in the appellate case. Um, okay, so, so that is the end of my formal presentation, but I wanted to save some time to answer any questions that you might have. Okay, I'm not sure if there are any questions that have come in anywhere else, but I don't see any questions coming through the Q&A, so thank you very much. All right, so hi again, everyone. It's me, um, Amy Anthony again. Um, so just to give you a roadmap um, of our Housing Court Appeals um, training portion, um, there are gonna be two parts of the training. Um, so the first part, which I'll be presenting, is on appeals from final judgments in summary process cases. Um, and then the second part, um, which we will be presented by Dick Bauer, will be um, appeals from post-judgment orders. Um, so if you do have any questions along the way, um, please feel free to put them in the chat box and we will um, address them after each um, part. Um, and then I also just wanted to direct you to your materials, um, which are in uh, tab 14. Um, so we have created a memo, which is uh, tab 14F, which goes through the sort of outlines the steps for appeals um, from each type of judgment or order um, and identifies the forms associated with each um, type um, and also provides relevant authority. Um, and then in the other tabs, we've also developed some um, forms um, which we will be referencing uh, in the presentations. Um, okay, next slide, please. Um, so just to give you the very, very bare bones basics about summary process. Um, so summary process is just the word for um, evictions in Massachusetts. Um, so summary process cases in housing court involve residential housing evictions. Um, and summary process is what it sounds like. It is indeed summary. Um, and these cases are, have their own rules. Um, they're the uniform summary process rules. Um, and those rules provide for expedited timelines for filing motions, um, discovery, trial, date, etc. Um, so the summary process rules apply to all summary process cases um, and the mass rules of civil procedure only apply uh, where the rules are inconsistent. So um, summary process cases are governed by the summary process rules, um, but if there's not a summary process rule on point, then you'll default to the civil rules. Um, so there are three kinds of summary process cases. Um, so there's non-payment of rent, which is um, self-explanatory. Um, there's also fault.
which is uh, an alleged breach of the lease. Um, and then there's also no fault cases, which um, is basically like uh, if uh, at the end of a tenancy, if the landlord elects not to renew the lease. Um, and it's important to know which type of case you're dealing with because um, there are different uh, defenses and counterclaims associated with each type. Um, so there are also regular civil cases that are heard in housing court, um, and those cases are governed by the normal civil procedure rules. Next slide, please. So uh, summary process cases are resolved typically in one of two ways. Um, so the first is um, after a trial on the merits, uh, the court issues a decision and enters a final judgment. Um, the judge usually makes the decision and mails it out within one to two weeks of the trial. Um, and then the other way that these cases are resolved are by um, an agreement. Um, so typically in housing court, this is an agreement for judgment um, where uh, judgment enters for the landlord for possession of the unit and then also money damages. So in summary process cases, there's always the issue of possession and then damages. Um, so again, the vast majority of cases are resolved through an AFJ um, and there are common terms in these agreements which include, um, may include repayment schedules or also behavioral terms um, like that the tenant agrees to comply with the lease or um, comply with certain provisions or that the landlord you know, makes uh, repairs, et cetera. Um, so if the landlord believes that the tenant has violated the terms of that AFJ, um, they can file a motion to issue the execution. Um, the execution is what allows the landlord to actually hire the sheriff um, to uh, sort of execute the, the physical eviction. Um, and there's a hearing, and then if the court finds that there's been a material violation of the agreement um, and that the tenant doesn't have any other defenses, um, it'll issue the execution, which again allows the landlord to what's called levy on that execution and recover possession. Next slide, please. Um, so we did want to note that there are two types of agreements that you may see. Um, so the first is this AFJ, Agreement for Judgment, um, that I just talked about. Um, this is by far the most common, um, and this is where the judgment enters on the date of that AFJ. Um, the other type of agreement that you may see, but which is less common, um, is just an agreement or stipulation, um, which provides the judgment enters on a later date. Um, so that could either be a prescribed later date um, or um, based on some conditions such as non-compliance with the agreement. Um, so the reason that it's really important to note uh, the date of the entry of judgment is because that affects um, whether or not the person is within the 10-day uh, deadline to appeal. Um, so for most cases involving sort of your standard AFJ, um, by the time they've come to the point of um, the landlord asking for issuance of the execution, they're far beyond that 10-day deadline. Um, which doesn't mean that they're totally out of luck. Um, they can appeal that issuance of the execution, though not the final judgment, but um, Dick will get into that in the next presentation. Uh, next slide. Um, so some things to consider um, when you're looking at a case is, um, first, is the appeal timely? Um, so one thing that's specific to appeals from summary process cases is that the uh, appeal has to be filed within 10 days of the entry of judgment. Um, so it's not the, the typical 30 days. Um, the other sort of important thing to note is that this 10-day deadline is strict. 
Um, it's set by statute in um, 239 section five. Um, so the court does not have the power to extend that deadline. Um, and uh, Emily talked a little bit about this, but if a Rule 59 or Rule 60 motion has been timely filed, so again, timely meaning um, in these cases within 10 days of the entry of judgment, um, the appeal deadline is told. So then that 10 day appeal period then runs from the date um, of disposal of that last remaining motion. Um, another sort of important thing to note is that um, if a notice of appeal was filed before um, that Rule 59 or Rule 60 motion was um, disposed of or decided, um, that notice of appeal is a nullity. Um, so a new one has to be filed. Um, there's been some um, movement of, on this, which I uh, won't get too far into, but um, the, the, you really should file a, a new notice of appeal after disposal of that motion. Um, then another really important thing in um, uh, appeals from final judgments in summary process cases is that the, the filing of the notice of appeal automatically stays the issuance of the execution pending the outcome of, a, of the appeal. Um, so that's a really important protection. Um, next slide, please. Um, so some things that you always want to consider um, is whether there are alternatives to appeals. So um, if um, you're meeting with someone and they are still within that 10-day window, um, it may make more sense for them to file a motion for reconsideration or a Rule 59 or 60 motion. Um, and again, uh, if that's denied, then the 10-day uh, appeal deadline to, to the 10-day appeal deadline resets. Um, and then the other thing that you also want to think about is whether there are other potential negotiated resolutions. Um, so sometimes it may just be a matter of um, the parties coming together and seeing if they can um, work something else out. Um, the appeal process is long um, and that can be, um, you know, not good for anyone sometimes. Um, and so often the parties are able to just kind of um, work out something that works for everyone. Next slide, please. Um, so it um, is really important to know which court you're appealing to. So um, the housing court and superior court cases are appealed to the appeals court. Um, district court cases are appealed to the appellate division of the district court. And Boston Municipal Court BMC cases are appealed to the appellate division of the BMC. Um, so again, for purposes of this presentation, we're just talking about housing court appeals, um, which go to the appeals court. And those are the a uh, vast majority of the cases that we would be seeing um, at the appeals clinic. Um, although I should note that sometimes we will provide um, kind of basic uh, procedural advice or substantive advice for people with district court summary process cases. Um, next slide, please. So how to appeal from a final judgment. Um, so the, again, the litigant needs to file a notice of appeal, which um, has to be filed within the 10 days. Um, and then they also, there's also a bond associated with the appeal. Um, so the um, litigant would either pay the bond or, or file a motion to set the appeal bond. Um, or if the person is indigent, they can file a motion to waive that appeal bond. Um, and then along with this, they would want to request the recording and transcript of the hearing. Um, and it's really um, best practice to just do all of these things at once so that they're all taken care of. Next slide. Um, so if the tenant is just paying the bond, um, it would be, if the amount is known, they can pay it. Um, 
And uh, that has to be, uh, or they have to file a motion to set it uh, within 10 days after the entry of the judgment. Um, so in a summary process case, that bond amount includes the judgment amount um, and all intervening rent during the pendency of the appeal and all damage or loss which the plaintiff may sustain by the withholding of possession. Um, so in the summary process actions after foreclosure, um, it's a little bit different. It includes all costs and a reasonable amount of rent of the land from the day when the mortgage was foreclosed, so the date of the foreclosure, until possession is obtained and all damage or loss due to withholding of possession um, or damage to the property. Um, so the rule says that a hearing on the motion to set bond shall be withheld within three business days of filing. Um, in practice, this doesn't typically happen, um, but the rule does say that. Um, next slide, please. Um, so the, the majority of um, clients that we see at the clinic um, are indigent, and so they would be filing um, a motion to have that appeal bond waived. Um, so the standard is that um, the party has to be indigent within the meaning of General Laws Chapter 261, Section 27A, um, and also that they have a non-frivolous defense. Um, so the sort of definition of non-frivolous is um, important. Um, because it means not a prayer of a chance. Um, so it doesn't mean that they just sort of don't have a winning case. Um, it's really, you know, much lower than that where they have no chance at all. Um, next slide, please. Um, so even if the bond is waived, um, the tenant still has to pay rent, um, which becomes due after that waiver um, in order to pursue their appeal. Um, so Often courts do require that the tenant pays the um, total amount of the rent that's due, um, but uh, we just really wanted to note that courts do have the authority to require payment of less than that full amount. Um, so um, there's a case from 1977 uh, called Cargman versus Dustin. Um, and uh, in that case, the appeals court went through sort of the development of um, chapter 239, section five. Um, and sort of emphasized that it uh, sort of moved into allowing um, judicial discretion um, to in uh, ordering an appropriate amount of bond. Um, and then there was a recent SJC case, um, which was Bank of New York Mellon versus King. Um, that, was, that just came out in June, um, where the SJC again sort of emphasized this idea that the judges have a lot of discretion in um, uh, determining the amount of rent that the um, tenant has to pay during the pendency of the appeal. Um, and uh, in exercising that discretion, the SEC really emphasized that the court is, should be attempting to achieve a fair balancing of both parties' interests. Um, so some of the factors that the court um, can consider are, again, sort of like bad conditions to the apartment um, that would affect the fair market rent or fair rental value of the property, um, the merits of the defense, um, the number of months that the landlord hasn't received any rental payment, um, the amount of um, sort of the landlord's monthly obligations um, for the property, um, the duration of the litigation. Um, there, are, there are various um, things that the court can consider. Um, but then the other thing is just um, that the court can consider if the, basically the tenant's ability to pay. Um, so this is just a really important thing to note because um, you can really push back on that amount um, that the tenant has to pay with the idea um, being that, um, you know, the purpose of this bond order is um, 
you know, it shouldn't be creating a monetary barrier to someone uh, pursuing a meritorious appeal. Um, and then, so in this motion to waive the appeal bond, you can also request waiver of other costs, um, including the costs of um, the recording and transcripts, et cetera. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so just a couple other considerations related to the bond orders. Um, so in a fault-based eviction, so that's again um, uh, an eviction in, uh, where the issue is a lease violation. Um, and so there's no typically um, money at issue. Um, there's usually not a monetary bond. Um, and um, another important thing is that the court may not impose non-monetary conditions on the appeal. Um, so that was in a recent case um, called Cambridge Street Realty versus Stewart, um, which just came out uh, in the last couple of years. Um, and then the other important thing to note is that the appeal is really conditioned upon compliance with the terms of the bond order. Um, and that failure to post the bond or to otherwise comply with the court's order um, may result in dismissal of the appeal. Um, so the court can dismiss it without hearing. Um, that's one uh, sort of also <laughs> important thing to note. Um, and then one issue that we do see, um, because many of our uh, clients do have um, various types of sub housing subsidies, um, where uh, the bond may be set when the rent is a certain level, um, but sort of during the pendency of the appeal, um, they may lose their job or um, have a change in family composition or something like that, which sort of changes the, um, uh, their rental uh, calculation. Um, if there are conditions which changes the tenant's ability to pay, um, they really should seek a change of that bond order um, by filing a motion with the court. Um, because even though their rent may be calculated lower by like a housing authority, um, the, the bond order is still the bond order. And um, that can sometimes create a lot of issues and confusion. Um, next slide, please. Um, so uh, you can appeal from the bond order. Um, so if a motion to waive appeal bond is denied, um, or if the tenant otherwise just disagrees with the bond order, um, they can appeal it by filing a request for review of that order within six days of the court's decision. Um, the request is filed in the housing court and gets transmitted to the appeals court. Um, but what gets transmitted to the appeals court is a really um, sort of skimpy uh, version of uh, of the case. So um, along with this request, um, the tenant really should include all of the relevant lower court documents that they want the um, appeals court to see. Um, so this is, uh, uh, this appeal goes to the single justice of the appeals court um, and is decided after a hearing. Um, and then the tenant has five days to comply with the single justice's order, um, otherwise the appeal is dismissed. Um, next slide. And um, so there's no direct appeal from the single justice's de denial um, of a request for review, um, but you, a tenant can still challenge that bond order after the appeal is dismissed. Um, and uh, Dick will be talking about appeals from the dismissal of appeal in um, his next section. Next slide, please. Um, so if there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Hi, Amy. I have a question. Can you talk about how the moratorium on evictions affects all of this? How the, well, <laughs> uh, 
Um, so many cases have either been <laughs> suspended or, um, you know, just have not been able to be filed. Um, so when the moratorium ends on October 17th, um, we are expecting sort of an absolute flood of um, housing cases coming in. Um, and that will be sort of cases that were again both suspended and also new cases. Um, and so I, because um, there will be sort of a lot of moratorium related uh, claims or defenses, um, I, we're just anticipating I think a lot of um, uh, a lot of appeals from these cases. Does that answer your question, Dick? It does. Thank you. Thanks. So I think I can hand it over to you because I think you are the only question so far. But if other people have questions, please feel free to add them to the chat. And I realized that um, I didn't put my contact information up, so I will also put that into the chat. Um, and please feel free to reach out to me for any questions about either the clinic or um, housing issues or housing appeals. So as Emily had explained earlier in the overview of the process, normally appeals are from judgments. Uh, we wait until there's a judgment and then the judgment goes up on appeal. Uh, and that's certainly true for many summary process cases as Amy explained. But in housing practice, it's quite common to have post-judgment orders uh, that go up on appeal as well. Um, so what I wanna do is take a minute and ask people in the chat box to uh, list some post-judgment orders that you think might be common in housing cases. So please put those in the chat box, post-judgment orders that you think might be common in housing cases. So Eric has put up stay of execution. Courtney's put up motion to issue execution. Are there some more? that's a good sample to start with. Um, so after judgment is entered in a summary process case, um, whether by agreement or by order of the court, um, there are a number of post-judgment uh, orders, uh, several of which people put up in the chat box, and we will go through the more common ones and talk about uh, how they work, and, um, and all of these are appealable. Uh, orders. What's going to distinguish them generally from uh, appeals and summary process judgments are three things. Uh, one of them uh, is the time period to appeal. 
one of them is the question of stay, and one of them is that while the courts understand that judgments are appealable, frequently the judges or the clerks or opposing parties may not understand that these are appealable at all. Um, so one of them is a motion to issue the execution. And as Amy explained earlier, that's typically a situation in which the landlord and the tenant entered into some kind of agreement. The landlord now is alleging that the tenant breached the agreement um, and has filed a motion to have the execution issued. Uh, and uh, these are appealable. And with all of the things we're talking about, they are appealable to the full appeals court. Um, the issues here are going to be limited since it's not the judgment going up, but just an appeal of the order allowing the issuance of the execution. It's going to be limited to the correctness um, of that order. Uh, and that's going to mean whether the judge erred in finding that there was a, quote, substantial violation of a material term or condition of the stay or a material term of the agreement for judgment. And that's a statutory standard that's set out in general law is chapter 239, section 10. Uh, but another issue could be whether the tenant was entitled to reasonable accommodation because of disability, whether the tenant was entitled to accommodation based on domestic violence under the Violence Against Women Act, um, or whether there was some other kind of post-judgment change, such as a new tenancy was created. Another post-judgment motion, which is common, is denial of a motion to vacate defaults. There's quite a high uh, level of defaults in summary process cases. The tenant defaults, the tenant files a motion to remove the default, and the court denies the motion. Of course, if the motion is allowed, the default is gone and the case proceeds. But if the judge denies the motion, um, the tenant has a right to appeal that denial. Again, the grounds are going to be limited to whether the judge erred, which means whether the tenant had a good reason for failing to appear, such as a clerical mistake, inadvertence, fraud, excusable neglect, um, and two, whether the tenant has a meritorious defense. So those will be the issues that will go up on appeal. Uh, another one is dismissal of an appeal. Uh, it is not infrequent to have uh, a tenant file an appeal and then to have that appeal be dismissed. Uh, there are a number of reasons, for example, uh, failure to prosecute the appeal, failure to take steps that are required for the appeal, and one that Amy mentioned earlier, which is failure to comply with a bond order. Again, the issues are going to be limited uh, to whether the dismissal was correct. Uh, so if it was a failure to take required steps, that will be an issue on appeal. If the question is whether the tenant complied with the bond order, that will be the issue on appeal. As Amy mentioned, there is some special law with regard to dismissals of appeal based on challenges to bond orders. As Amy noted, there is no direct appeal from a single justice's order with regard to an appeal bond. Um, but that doesn't mean that the tenant is without recourse, because if the tenant, after losing at the single justice, fails to comply with the order, in other words, doesn't pay the bond required by the single justice, or doesn't pay the use and occupancy required by the single justice, and the case gets appealed, the tenant can appeal from the dismissal of the appeal. And on appeal, the tenant gets to raise the question of whether the bond order was correct and whether the tenant had a non-frivolous ground for appeal. So, for example, the trial judge denied waiver of the bond 
saying this appeal is frivolous. The single justice affirmed that uh, if the appeal then gets dismissed, the tenant can appeal that dismissal and can say the single justice got it wrong. The appeal was not frivolous and therefore the bond should have been waived. If the appeals court agrees with that, the dismissal of the appeal um, is vacated, the appeal is reinstated, and the original underlying appeal goes ahead. Denials of stays. There's several kinds of stays um, that can come up in housing cases. One of them is statutory stays. General Laws, Chapter 239, Section 9, allows judges to stay issuance of executions in no-fault cases. The judge can give up to six months, and if somebody in the household is over 60 or handicapped, the judge can give up to a year. Uh, the judge may refuse to grant one of these stays, which are discretionary, or may grant it a more limited stay. The judge might grant one month rather than six months or rather than 12 months. These stays are by statute, not under the usual standards for stays. Uh, and if the judge refuses to grant relief, they are appealable. The tenant may also alternatively be requesting a stay on some other kind of basis, such as Rule 62 or equity. For example, the tenant says, I found housing, I just need some more time. Or the tenant says, I've made all the required payments, the execution shouldn't be issuing. Um, all of these are appealable. Uh, again, the issue on appeal is going to be limited, and here it's going to be limited to whether the judge abused their discretion in denying the stay. The steps to an appeal are going to be similar but not identical to those in an appeal of the judgment. There's going to be a notice of appeal, but here the time period for appealing is 30 days because uh, this is not an appeal of the judgment which has a 10-day period, and therefore it just comes under uh, Appellate Rule 4, which provides for 30 days to appeal. Although, of course, uh, if, since the tenant is at risk of being physically moved out, the tenant is presumably going to want to get it in as soon as possible. Uh, second, there is no automatic stay in these cases because they are not appeals of the judgment, so the defendant is going to need to request a stay. Um, I want to take a minute and ask people to use the chat box to put up where do you think you would go to request the stay? So if you're doing one of these appeals, where are you going to go? What court are you going to go to to request a stay? Please put it in the chat box. So Damara says lower court. Catherine says housing court. More thoughts? Appeals Court, Julius says. Great. Well, it turns out uh, all of those answers, as you'll see, are correct. Um, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But there will be an order in which you'll want to do it. 
Um, and the other thing you want to do as part of the steps of the appeal, just as if you were appealing from the judgment, is to request a transcript. Uh, and we've provided in the materials um, that we're providing to you uh, in tab 14E, some materials on how to request uh, a transcript. It's now done all electronically. You can order the recording, you can order the transcript, you can order both, and you'll find information about how to do that in tab 14E. So as we said, you're going to need to seek a stay because there's no automatic stay. Um, and under the rules, the tenant must first seek a stay in the lower court, um, which in this case is going to be the housing court. But if the stay is not granted by the housing court, the tenant can then request a stay from a single justice of the appeals court. And that's going to be governed by Mass Rule Appellate Procedure 6 and Mass Appeals Court Rule 6.0. Remember that earlier on, um, Emily mentioned that there are two sets of rules you need to follow, the rules of appellate procedure and the appeals court's own rules. Um, so the tenant can request to stay from a single justice of the appeals court. If there's a reason why the tenant can't request a stay from the lower court, uh, the lower court judge is not available, um, time is urgent and you can't get back and the lower court judge has already, for example, issued the order that you're contesting, it is possible to go directly to a single justice without going to the uh, housing court, but part of their case to the single justice is going to be to explain why you couldn't go to the lower court first. Appeals Court Rule 6.0 contains a lot of detail. It's essentially uh, a miniature set of the rules of appellate procedure for a miniature appeal all in one. So the stay has to include a request for the stay, a brief statement of the underlying order, the date of the order, the name of the judge, the order denying the stay, uh, or an explanation about why it's not practical to first go to the lower court, statement of issues of law, statement of the relief requested, and an addendum containing copies of all of the papers uh, in the case. So as you can see, this really looks like you're doing um, a brief, a record appendix, an addendum, all wrapped into one on an emergency basis. To get a stay, the standard is the same as a standard for preliminary injunction. So that means what's the likelihood of success on the merits? What's the likelihood of irreparable harm if relief is denied? What's the risk of irreparable harm um, to both parties? And does the irreparable harm to the moving party outweigh the harm to the opposing party? Uh, but it's important to remember that likelihood of success doesn't mean that you are likely to succeed. It just asks, what is the likelihood of success? Uh, and as the courts have repeatedly said, where the moving party's irreparable harm is great, the court may order relief on a showing of merely substantial possibility rather than likelihood of success. So a tenant who is seeking a stay in one of these cases, um, the appeals court doesn't have to be persuaded that the person is likely to win the appeal, merely that there's a substantial possibility that they will win and that the balance of irreparable harms is really substantial in favor of the 
tenant. Otherwise, the appellate procedure is going to be the same as for an appeal of a final judgment. Um, unlike appeal bonds in summary process cases are statutory because these post-judgment appeals are not appeals of the judgment, the statutory provisions for appeal bond don't apply and there therefore is no need to move for waiver of the appeal bond. However, a court may require a bond or its equivalent as a condition of the stay. And that's spelled out in the rules of appellate procedure uh, 6A2 and 6A3. So your client will need to be prepared to post a bond or its equivalent or to pay ongoing rent or its equivalent just as if it was an appeal of the judgment. But here it would be done as a condition of the stay rather than uh, pursuant to the statute. If there are questions, please put them up in the Q&A box. So somebody's put up a question, appellate court, then SJC. Uh, so I'm not sure whether that is meant with regard to the appeal itself or with regard to the stay. We talk a bit about both of those. Uh, so normally appeals are to the appeals court. Uh, as Emily said, uh, it is possible to have SJC uh, take cases either by seeking direct review by the SJC, or sometimes the SJC takes direct review uh, on its own initiative, sua sponte. Um, and if you lose at the appeals court, it is also possible to seek further review from the SJC. Although frankly, um, that's pretty unusual. The SJC takes only perhaps three or four or five percent of the cases for which further review is requested. That would be with regard to the underlying appeal. That would be with regard to the appeal from the post-judgment order. If the question was about a stay, the answer is yes, it is possible to go from a single justice of the appeals court to the SJC. As Emily had explained earlier, you can seek superintendent's review from a single justice of the SJC. The single justice is going to want to know that you've attempted all other possible forms of relief before going there. But if you requested a stay in the trial court and lost, and then requested a stay from a single justice of the appeals court and lost, it is possible to go to a single justice of the SJC and apply for a stay there uh, and occasionally get those stays. So that is a, a possible option if you can't get a stay from a single justice of the appeals court. Other questions? Dick, uh, Courtney just asked a question, which is, um, how do you advise tenants at the clinic who have waived their appeal rights in an AFJ? Typically, when people have waived their appeal rights in an AFJ, an agreement for judgment, what they've waived are the rights um, to the underlying appeal, uh, not necessarily to appeal from one of these post-judgment orders. So, uh, so if I had a case that I settled with an agreement for judgment, it might say uh, the tenant gets to stay, uh, here are the terms in which the tenant gets to stay, uh, and the tenant waives the right to appeal. Typically what that means is the tenant can't appeal from the agreement for judgment itself. But if the agreement says the tenant gets to stay on certain conditions, and the landlord then alleges that the tenant breached those conditions, 
and asks for issuance of the execution and that issuance is allowed, um, the tenant usually has not waived the right to appeal the decision to issue the execution. Um, if in the very unusual case in which the agreement for judgment did purport to provide for waiver of the right to appeal, even from a post-judgment order, um, I think you may want to look at the question of whether that waiver is enforceable since nobody knew at the time what the issues were going to be and it therefore is questionable on policy grounds whether the that waiver ought to be treated as effective. It's one thing to waive your rights as part of the agreement. It's another thing to waive potential future rights that have not yet come into existence. Are there other questions either about the post-judgment orders um, or about the appeals of judgments that Amy talked about? Oh, Doug, I have a question, um, which is, um, so I know some of the um, housing courts um, actually aren't clear on the appeal process for um, these appeals from the post-judgment orders. Um, sometimes they will say, oh, these are interlocutory, they have to go to the single justice, which we now know from your presentation is not correct. Um, so what's the best way to handle where um, the tenant has taken all the steps that they are supposed to, but the appeal is kind of stalled in the housing court um, with, you know, in terms of uh, assembling the record, et cetera? Uh, so I think people may want to try going to the appeals court, uh, to the clerks perhaps, and seeing whether uh, they can get some assistance there. Uh, are Joe and Patty uh, still here with us? Joe or Patty, if you are still here, can you uh, unmute, unmute and turn on your camera and weigh in on this? And can you just repeat the question again, please? Hang on. Just, I'm here. Sorry, there we are. Okay, yeah. um, could, you, um, could you repeat the question again? Sure. So, uh, Amy, do you want to repeat it? Do you want me to do that? Sure, I can repeat it. Um, so my question was that um, so the, some of the courts um, actually uh, don't, are seemingly sort of not aware of the process for appealing these post-judgment orders and may sort of incorrectly characterize them as interlocutory and, you know, say that they have to go to the single justice. So um, the question was, um, what should tenants do when they've followed all of the steps that they're supposed to to um, pursue their appeal, but where the appeal is kind of stalled in the housing court, um, where the housing court isn't um, uh, uh, assembling the record, et cetera. So if they're not, there's, there's always the option of filing a motion to compel assembly of the record. Um, many times a litigant will bring that to our court first and they'll for exactly the reason you're saying and typically our our what the court would do would do a denied without prejudice to refiling in the trial court in the first instance um because again there may be some confusion on, on the part of the clerk's office there that would be brought to a judge's attention who would typically know that that was a final appealable order and should the record should be assembled um certainly anytime you know you know, anybody from the clinic or anybody from, you know, as far as a litigant goes, can always call our office. And that's what we would suggest to them is to just file the motion in the trial court in the first instance. Um, 
Is that, is that helpful? Yeah, that's great. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay. Patty, do you ever, does the clerk's office ever call a lower court clerk's office about something like that to try and expedite the process? We, if, if there's, if there's a real stumbling block, we will, we will um, call and just, you know, clarify. Um, oftentimes what will happen is I have to say that it, it gets resolved by the party follow, filing the motion themselves in the trial court. But we've, we've definitely done that to help expedite, so. Thank you for the answer and thank you for the expedition. Okay, good. I'm sorry I got a little stuck there trying to get myself turned back on. <laughs> that's okay. You were, you were probably not expecting to be called on. No, that's okay. coming back. I'm just reading along here and then it was just, oh, oh dear. Okay, thank you. Okay. Other, other questions, Amy? Uh, no, there are no more questions okay. in the chat or the Q&A. Okay. Um, so, um, we should see whether there are, at this point, uh, questions for Tina or for uh, Emily or for Catherine as well. If they're not, I think we get to send people home early on a beautiful Friday afternoon. Thank you everybody for coming and doing this with us. Uh, we hope, hope it was helpful. Uh, what we've talked about, um, if you have questions, you can uh, contact us. We've hopefully answered some more questions in the materials. And uh, Amy and I wanted to mention that we've included some materials specifically on perfecting these housing appeals, which you'll find in the, uh, uh, in the materials at tabs 14C and 14D, uh, and we've also provided uh, a memo to sort of walk you through the different kinds of housing appeals. That's at 14F, and there are forms at 14G. But after looking at those, if you still need uh, some more information, please circle back to us. Thank you, everyone. Thank you to all of our panelists, um, and thank you to everybody who attended, and we wish you all a very nice weekend. Thank you.